Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. If you've got a copy of the Bible, uh, you could turn off this on 103, and that is where we'll be this morning. I wonder if you've ever had the experience in, uh, perhaps in a church setting, like a worship service, where there's songs being sung, and maybe even you're singing along, so you, you're singing the songs, you're saying the same words, but you have a hard time getting your heart to follow. Like, you, your, your heart is not really doing the same thing that your mouth is saying. So maybe you're singing songs that have, like, uh, you know, vibrant praise and all these words about like how great God is and how much we want to like love him and worship him and all these things, but you're just not feeling it, right? Your heart is not really matching your mouth. I, I've had that experience on a number of occasions and I'm in the, the weird position of even when I feel like that, having to lead others, right? And so that's, that has at times been a very uh, interesting tension to live in as a leader uh, in worship, but I think all of us at some point or another probably experienced that tension, that gap between what my mouth is saying and what my heart is feeling, right? So sometimes we sing songs that even have like bold promises, I'll do whatever you say, and you know, I love you more than anything else, and in our hearts we're kind of going, I'm not sure if that's true. I don't know that I really would do anything that God asks, or I'm not sure that right now it's really true that I love God more than anything else, because actually there's this list of things in my mind that I really, really love, and I'm not sure. You know, so I think at times we experience that gap between what our hearts are doing, what our hearts are feeling, the affections of our hearts, and what we're saying with our mouth. And I think that uh, Psalm 103 provides good medicine for that gap. Good medicine for that tension between what is going on in my heart and what my mouth is doing. And so we've read Psalm 103 in its entirety already in the service, so we're not going to go again from verse 1 all the way to 22 in terms of reading it. But we're going to walk together kind of piece by piece through this. There is one exhortation, and one exhortation only, in Psalm 103. And it's this, bless the Lord. And you might notice it says it more than one time. In fact, it's repeated seven times throughout this psalm, both at the beginning and then again at the very end. Look at the beginning there. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Verse 2, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. And then if you skip to the end, to verse 20, there it is again. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts. Verse 22, bless the Lord, all his works. And then the final phrase, bless the Lord, O my soul. It ends just like it began. Seven times, bless the Lord is the exhortation from this psalm. That's just another way of saying a command, right? You are commanded as the people of God to bless him. What does that mean? It really just means to speak well of him. To bless the Lord is to speak well of the Lord which is to praise him, right? When we praise somebody, what are we doing? We're, we're affirming them. We're saying something good about them, 
right? And so to praise God, to bless God, is to say good things about him to him. So we turn our eyes and attention to the Lord and we affirm him. We praise him. We say good things about him directly to him. And that exhortation to praise God, to speak well of God, bookends the psalm. It starts, bless the Lord, O my soul, and it ends, bless the Lord, O my soul. And so if that exhortation to praise God is the bookend, then the psalmist fills in the, the shelf, so to speak, with reasons, right? With, with, with the, the worthiness of God, expressions of God's worthiness for such blessing and honor and praise and glory. And so we'll get to kind of all the content that he gives us uh, for why we ought to bless the Lord. But we start with that tension of the fact that we know we should bless the Lord. And at times we are blessing the Lord, praising the Lord with our mouths. But it's like our hearts have not joined in. And so David, who's writing this psalm, begins by talking to himself. Bless the Lord. Who? Oh, my soul. He's speaking to his own soul in the second person, like he's addressing himself. Praise the Lord, soul. Right? He's speaking to himself. And I think that there's an instructive principle here or a spiritual discipline here of, of speaking good news to our own souls, speaking to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great Welsh pastor in the 20th century. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. And so he's writing about uh, how, you know, Christians deal with uh, just feelings of despair and depression and, and feeling down. And so he writes to try to help Christians to, to speak basically good news over themselves. And so here, here's something he says. He says, our problem often is that, quote, we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself, right? So those voices that sort of come up that we don't necessarily plan for or think through, that just kind of bombard us, right? That, that comes to us and we tend to listen to that voice more than we intentionally speak truth to our own hearts. He goes on, we must understand that this self of ours, this other man within us, has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him. Condemn him. Upbraid him. Exhort him. Encourage him. Remind him of what you know instead of listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. I think a lot of times the gap happens, the gap between heart and mouth, between external praise and internal affections, that gap happens because we're listening to ourselves, as Lloyd-Jones would say, instead of talking to ourselves. And so David gives us an example in this psalm of how to talk to ourselves <clears throat> as we tell the good news to our own souls over and over. We invite our hearts to come along. And it's like throughout this psalm, he's saying, Come on, soul, right? Join with my mouth in declaring the praise of God. And so we'll begin now to walk through the material that he 
provides his own soul to consider, recognizing the gap between the praise that's coming out of my mouth and the distance or coldness or unmovedness of my heart. He's going to give himself material to consider, to stir his heart into authentic and true worship of God. And he does this in three broad categories. Number one is God's grace to me. As he begins by looking at his own life and considering God's grace to him. That happens in verses 3 through 5. So it begins with the exhortation, bless the Lord of my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name, and forget not all his benefits. And so now he's going to list out ways that God has given grace to him in his own life. And we could each apply these truths to our own lives. So these things that are true of David are true of us. And I'd say all the more true of us because we live under the new covenant of God's grace through Christ. So let's look at what he says here. Number one, he forgives my sin. Look at that, verse three. Forgives all your iniquity. Iniquity is just a fancy old-fashioned word for stuff that ain't right, right? This is sin. This is brokenness. This is unrighteousness in my life. Guess what? God forgives all of your iniquity. I know the darkness that lives in my own heart. Often my sin seems like the only thing that I can see. In fact, I was just talking this past week with Lindsay about how I tend to draw a strong line between my past and my present life because I don't like the guy that I was. I don't know if you can relate to that. If you think back to times in your life before, maybe before you knew Christ or before you really started taking seriously your, your walk with him. But when I look back to my life, mostly like in my teenage years, I just don't like the guy that I was. I was far from God. I was, I was making bad choices. I was offending God and others. And sometimes when I think about that, when I, when I reflect on the person I used to be and the ways that I used to live, it threatens to swallow me with guilt and shame over the, the, the choices that I made. There's a great hymn called Before the Throne of God Above, and one of, one of the lines of that hymn is, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. The only answer to the sin and the shame and the guilt and the darkness from our own hearts and from our own past, even presently, is to look to Christ who has forgiven all your iniquity. That is huge. There is no sin that's too big and bad and horrible for God in Christ to forgive. His grace is enough. He forgives all my sin. Secondly, he heals all my diseases. Now, sometimes God does heal our physical infirmities. I believe that God can do that, and I believe that he does at times. But I think that, uh, <clears throat> I think that the healing in view here is closely tied to the forgiveness of sin in the phrase just before. I think it's more like he's saying that, that he, he takes my sin-sick soul and restores it. He re recovers uh, a wholeness in my soul that had been diseased, that had been broken because of sin. So I think there's a metaphor 
for healing going on. Because we don't have the promise that God is always going to heal every sickness I ever have. In fact, every human being, with a very few exceptions, like Jesus and Elijah, right, die at some point. And they die because they get sick. And the body doesn't recover, right? So he doesn't heal all your diseases literally in a physical way. Everybody dies at some point. And so I think sometimes he does. But what's in view here is more God's healing of our sin sickness. The brokenness and woundedness and dis-ease, to take that word literally, of our souls. And he repairs. He renews. He heals the wounds and the brokenness that sin has wrought in our souls. He sanctifies us in righteousness so that the marks of sin in our lives gradually fade. And we look a little bit more like Jesus with each passing day. At least we hope and pray that's what's happening as we walk with the Lord. He heals my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit. Some translations say from destruction. Or Sheol, which is the grave, which is like the place of the dead. So he's redeemed my life from the grave, which is literally saying he saved me from death. He's given me a new life and an eternal hope. He redeems your life from the pit. Whatever the pit looks like in your mind, when you think about where my life used to be, or maybe a situation I'm in right now that feels like I'm never going to climb out of this mess. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of pit. But God in Christ has redeemed you from that pit and is redeeming you from it. He's rescuing. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's rescuing you from destruction and he's setting you up for the promise and the surety of eternal life. He crowns you with love and mercy. Look at verse 4 in the second half. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The notion of crowning there is like a bestowing of honor and dignity that we don't deserve. We don't deserve to be honored as a sinner before a holy God. We should be crowning him, and yet he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good. Verse 5. He satisfies you with good. Oh, how hard it is to be satisfied. How we strive for gain and achievement and pleasure and fulfillment. And so there's just no bottom to this pit, right? It just goes and goes and goes and we're never satisfied. Mick Jagger expressed it very well all those years ago. I can't get no satisfaction, right? We just never feel full. We never get enough. We always want more. We always want better. And when you enjoy something or experience joy or pleasure for a while, it passes and then you feel empty and you need it again. It's so hard to be satisfied. But look at this. God in his grace satisfies you with good. The Lord alone satisfies you with good. And I think that good namely is himself. It's his grace to you in the gospel. It's his kindness and mercy towards you. He satisfies. When we rest, when we soak in the, the mercies of God to us, when we let all those truths that he's forgiven me and healed me and redeemed me and crowned me, when we let all those things settle and, 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 and we reflect on those truths, it's satisfaction 
alone comes from God. He satisfies us with good. And the result of all of this, the, the forgiving, the healing, the redeeming, the crowning, the satisfying, is that we are renewed like the eagle. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. And of course, the eagle is this picture of just strength and majesty and life and freedom, right? And so it's like when we consider the grace of God in our own life, we're restored, we're renewed. There, there's strength that comes from this consideration, right? The result is this renewal. <clears throat> now I think, let me pause here and make a note before we go much further. I think that it's worth talking about the vantage point of David compared to our own vantage point as worshipers of God. So David wrote from a position under the old covenant, right? He, he lived on, on the other side of the cross. Jesus had not yet come. He had not yet paid for sins on the cross. So this is uh, the, the old covenant where God's blessing of his people was really dependent upon their obedience. Right? If you read Deuteronomy chapter 29, it's just filled with all these blessings that God will give his people if they obey and the hardship and curses that will come upon them if they disobey, right? If they're unfaithful to God. So the old covenant, this is, this is where they live. But we live under a new covenant. We live on this side of the cross. Christ has come. Christ has paid for sins. And, we, and he's inaugurated a new covenant in his blood where God's favor rests upon us not on the basis of our own obedience and faithfulness, but on the faithfulness and obedience of Jesus, right? Because Christ obeyed. Because Christ fulfilled the law, because Christ paid for sins, we are under this fountain of God's favor and kindness and mercy and blessing because of Christ. And that's true all the time, even when we disobey, even on a day or in a season where we're less faithful to him. We're still under the favor of God in Christ because that's the new covenant reality. Now, David certainly knew of God's grace and mercy. I mean, God's grace was evident under the Old Covenant. There's a question about that. So I don't think this is, like, less true for David in Psalm 103. But how much more do we receive of God's kindness and mercy who are resting in Jesus Christ? He has forgiven you. He's healed your diseases. He's redeemed your life from destruction. He's crowned you with love and mercy. He satisfies you with gifts of grace. Come on, soul. Right? Join my mouth in declaring the praise of God. That's what David does here, and I think that's what we ought to do in our own lives when we feel that tension. I'm saying stuff that I'm not sure I believe. I don't feel it. Tell yourself these things. Look at all that God has done for you in Christ. Come on. Let's worship God in spirit and in truth. He turns his attention outward now <clears throat> from his own, from God's grace in his own life. He now looks outward to see God's grace to his people. So he considers now all that the nation of Israel and even looks back in their history. He says there in verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And so he's looking backward now and thinking of how God has revealed himself in the past. Look at the first thing he says about him. Verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
To be oppressed is to be pressed down and subjected by someone in authority over you or someone using their strength to subject you in some way. And God has his eye on those people. God has a particular interest in the pain and the cries of the oppressed. And he not, it doesn't just feel their pain. What does he do? He works. He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Think, thinking about the kind of abuse uh, scandal that's come to light in SBC churches, even the fact that that's all come to light, guess what that is? That's God working. That's God working for righteousness and justice. Stuff that's in the dark, don't stay in the dark forever. It's going to come out, right? He's going to come after you. <laughs> he's going to work for justice, and he's going to work for righteousness, and he's going to bring peace and comfort and healing and restoration to those who have been oppressed. That's what God is about. That's his heart. That's the way he deals with his people. Always has. And then he reveals himself. Look at verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses. Thinking, I think about Moses going up on the Mount Sinai and receiving the, the law from God. God revealed himself. And that is huge. If God didn't choose to reveal himself to us, we'd have no way of knowing him. The situation would be the same. We'd still be sinners. He'd still be holy. We'd still be under his wrath. We just wouldn't know. And we would all die in our sins and be judged for eternity. That's just the way that it would be. And it would be righteous of God. It would be just of God to do that. In his kindness, he's revealed himself to us. He's showed us who he is. The Puritan Matthew Henry says, Divine revelation is one of the first and greatest of divine favors with which the church is blessed. For God restores us to himself by revealing himself to us and gives us all good by giving us knowledge. He has made known his acts and his ways, that is, his nature and the methods of his dealing with the children of men, that they may know both what to conceive of him and what to expect from him. It's incredibly kind of God to step into time and space and say, this is who I am, and this is what I expect of you, and here is how I've provided for you in Christ. It's incredibly kind of the Lord. He's revealed himself to his people. The Lord is always patient. Look at verses 8 through 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. How I wish that were true, more true of me. Slow to anger. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So he's slow to anger and he doesn't stay angry long. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, praise God, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He's patient. He's merciful. You know, if you think about it, if anybody has the right to just be mad all the time, it's God, right? We get mad so easy. Somebody cuts us off in traffic and suddenly we're like flying into a rage. How dare they? Or my kid talks back to me or disobeys me and I'm like, how dare you, right? We have this like sense of internal like rage and justice about how they, people ought to treat me. But if you think about it, those things are so petty and silly compared to the constant, persistent offenses of sinners against God. 
He is holy and righteous and just in every way. And his creatures, who he made from dirt, constantly spurn him, rebel against him, reject him, insult his holiness. Doesn't God have the right to be angry? To be offended by the sins of his people? So you'd expect, God's just mad. God's just mad at me all the time. Praise God, but man, he's mad. But that's not the picture of God that we get, is it? He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He, he will not always chide, that is like to, to rebuke, to chastise, nor will he keep his anger forever. In fact, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, he's taken all of that anger against sin, and he's put it on him instead. And so what I know and what you know of God is not anger. It's love. It's patience. It's forgiveness. It's mercy. It's favor. That's what we know of God, despite what might come to your mind or, or what your heart might really believe about how God is. The notion that God is just sort of this, you know, this correcting dad who's like waiting for you to screw up so that he can pounce on you. It's not God at all. God is patient. God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. Despite all of the whining and wandering that his people have always done, he patiently waits and corrects and instructs and redeems and renews. Come on, soul. This is your God. Come on. If I, my heart ought to follow the, my mouth in, in, in declaring praise of God. And then he's going to kind of ex, try to express how deep and vast and long and wide is the love of God. Look at verse 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. That's obviously not like an actual measurement. Like if we could figure out exactly how high heaven is and how far away it is from the surface of the earth, then we'll know exactly how big God's love is. The point is, you can't imagine how vast and unending his love and patience is toward, wait, toward whom? Toward those who fear him. Just to remind you again about the vantage point of David living under the old covenant where the fear of God would have looked like obedience. It would have looked like we're, we're keeping covenant. We're going to do what God says. We don't live in that same place, right? Under the new covenant, the one who fears God runs to the cross of Jesus Christ, knowing it's his only shelter. That's what the fear of God looks like. The fear of God looks like sheltering under the cross of Christ and taking his, letting his payment and his penalty apply to me by faith. Those who fear him are not those who obey everything he says, although we ought to strive for obedience. We ought to grow in obedience. We ought to desire obedience. But those who fear him are those who are resting in the righteousness of Jesus on their behalf. The fear of God leads to rest. The fear of God leads to rest. If God's steadfast love for us depended on our obedience to him, we'd all be toast. We have no hope at all because our obedience is... Fickle, flimsy, faulty at best. So don't let the fear of God become doubt about his patience. 
don't let the fear of God become panic at the thought of his coming judgment. It can be that. Rather, let the fear of God lead you to confident, liberating rest in the cross of Christ, where all your sins were judged and all his love flows to you now and forever. This is your God. And then he contrasts our fleeting nature with God's eternal love. Look at this. He compares us to a flower, which is not all that flattering. Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And we're thinking, oh, wow, flowers are pretty. Flowers are nice. They add value to the world. That's a really nice comparison. Then verse 16, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. Oh, that's what he means. The flowers around it aren't going, man, you remember that one flower? How cool he was, how pretty he was. Man, I miss that guy. The flowers are like, we don't remember. There's a new flower popping up in this place. We don't even care about the old flower. He's gone. That's what human life is like in the world, humanly speaking. We're here, we're gone, we're forgotten. That's the way it is. But God, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. God's love is a never-ending, never-failing, always-flowing love. Again, towards whom? Toward those who fear him. So remember the new covenant reality where we live. Those who are resting their lives and their eternity upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So those who are sheltering under the cross of Christ, his love is never stopping, never failing. Though we are not lasting, though we are feeble and fleeting and failing, the love of God toward us will never run out. Come on, soul. This is God. He's worthy. His love for you goes on and on and on, never stopping, never ceasing, never failing. This is the love of God for his people. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. In the final section of the psalm, it's like David can't contain himself anymore. He's been considering God's grace to himself in his own life, forgiveness and healing and redemption and crowning and satisfying. And he's looked out at how God treats his people, how he's revealed himself and how he's patient and merciful toward them and how his love never stops. And then he's, he's going to set his sights even higher and speak about the rule of God. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So you see how we go from, from small and personal, God's grace to me, to broader and historical, God's grace to his people throughout the ages. And now it's like as big as it could possibly get. God reigns over everything. There's no corner of his creation where God does not reign as king and supreme. He's established his throne in the heavens and he has his way over everything. And so that leads him to this final exhortation. And it's not just to himself, right? He's exhorted himself, but now he's looking beyond God's grace in his own life and beyond the people of God and beyond God's rule over the world. And he says, now he's going to start talking to angels. This is bold. How many of you talk to angels in your prayers? Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, like his armies, right? His ministers who do his will. 
And then all creation, verse 22, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Where's his dominion? Everywhere. Everyone, everywhere, in all times, in all places, including in the heavens, bless the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. And then one more time, the very last phrase, one more time after this magnificent call to all creation and all the angels and all that God has made, he invites his soul once more to join in that song that creation has been singing from day one and will continue singing for all eternity. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is your God. This is who God is. This is what he's done for you. So we turn to our hearts and our souls. We say, come on, soul. This is God. Join my heart. Join my mouth in declaring the praise of God. So if you find a gap between your mouth and your heart, I think all of us do at times. Speak to yourself this way. Let's just become a spiritual discipline for you. Preaching the gospel to yourself. I borrowed that from Jerry Bridges, he said that he borrowed it from someone else, so I don't know where that started. But the notion of preaching to yourself is exactly what David does for us here in Psalm 103, turning inward to your own heart and recounting the manifold mercies and love of the Savior. And invite your heart to come along as you declare the praise of God.